1798, a board game made it over to the United States called The New Game of Human Life. Now, the game was made up of moves based on virtues and vices. The virtues sped you along. The vices slowed you down. The parents were actually encouraged to play this game with their children. And the game's creators spelled out the primary purpose of, of the game with these words, and I quote, Life is a voyage that begins at birth, ends at death. God is at the helm, and your reward lies beyond the grave. Imagine how that board game would sell today. Well, the man by, a man by the name of Milton Bradley took up the legacy of that game and in 1860 created a board game and called it the checkered game of life. The good path for those who were going to win included moral attributes, honesty and bravery. The slower path, if you were unfortunate to get on that one, you weren't going to win the game, would be idleness and disgrace. Industry and perseverance led the game players to win wealth and success. And Bradley described it as, quote, a highly moral game that encourages children to lead exemplary lives and entertains both old and young with the spirit of friendly competition. He evidently didn't play games at my house where it's fierce. It's fierce competition. A hundred years later, in 1960, the Milton Bradley Company released an anniversary edition simply called The Game of Life. And it went on to sell 35 million copies. The game had been revised to have the players earning money to buy things like furniture, houses, grow family. Vices and virtues were non-existent. The winner of the game was the one who at the, quote, day of reckoning had the most money. That's not all. The game is still morphing. The game was revived again in the 1990s. The Milton Bradley designers tried to make the game less about money. In fact, even in this one, the family was out, wasn't mentioned, in favor of game players saving endangered species and solving pollution problems. They were the ones rewarded with cash, which ultimately created the winner. Then in 2011, the game was revised yet again. This time, players had the ability to do whatever they wanted and get rewarded for it. Is that who we are or what? They can attend school, they can travel, start a family, whatever they like. Values are non-existent. In fact, you get as many points for donating a kidney to some needy person as you do for choosing to go scuba diving. And there is no end or last square to the game. You stop whenever you want. Because, and here's the subtle hint, we're not going to mention the end of life. In fact, the game's description says, and I quote, here's the goal now, quote, do whatever it takes to retire in style at the end of the game. What a change of perspective reflected even in the games we play. The revision of this game, as I thought about it and, and, and studied the revision online, it's interesting to me how it mirrors the digression of our Western culture. A winner used to be one who acquired virtues and shunned vices. 
The winner was one who simply intuitively knew that God was in control at the helm and one day you'll stand before him and that's where you'll get the real reward. Now, we're just encouraged to do whatever we want to do and expect to be rewarded for it, whether it's virtue or vice, whatever it might be. And remember, the goal of living is reaching retirement. And if you can, get all the stuff along the way so that when you do retire, you have money, and that's basically the goal. What a difference. What a difference 200 years has made. The loss of moral values and the courage to list moral vices has deeply impacted our culture, has it not? If you've been watching the news in the wake of the London riots, Just a few months ago, one religious leader, not a believer, but a religious leader in the church in Great Britain, and I know that based on some other things that I won't take time to talk about, but he had the courage to say that the rioting was merely a symptom of moral disintegration, and I thought that was wonderful. He's right on the money. The rioting, he said, had nothing to do with the economy. It had to do with Moral disintegration, which he says has swept the Western world away. The Wall Street Journal actually carried his full statement, which I read, and the leader said, and I quote, There has been a tsunami of wishful thinking that has washed across the West. Wishful thinking that you can have sexual relations without the responsibility of marriage. That you can have children without the responsibilities of parenthood. That you can have social order without the responsibilities of citizenship. That you can have liberty without the responsibilities of morality. And you can have self-esteem without the responsibilities of work. You'd think this microphone would have been turned off by then. But he went on to add, there are large parts of Britain, Europe, and even the United States where religion is now a thing of the past. And there is no longer a counter voice to the culture of buy it, spend it, wear it, flaunt it, because you're worth it. The message now is that morality is passe, conscience is for wimps, and the single overriding command to follow through life is, thou shalt not be found out. He's true. He's telling the truth. Harvard historian, he quoted Niall Ferguson, has a passage in his new book, Civilization, in which he asks whether the West can maintain its primacy on the world stage or if its civilization is now so far in decline, it will lose its primacy. And he quoted a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. This particular member of the academy had been tasked over the last several decades to try to find out what gave the West its dominance on the world scene. And this Chinese Academy of Social Sciences member said this is what we've discovered. At first, decades ago, we thought your dominance was because of your weapons. And then we knew that wasn't true, so we, we thought it was your political system, your democracy. And then we knew that wasn't true, and we, we said, well, maybe your dominance is because of your economic system, capitalism. We discovered that wasn't true. For the last 20 years, we have known what gave the West its dominance. It is your religion. His observations are insightful. 
but his answer doesn't quite reach the mark because the solution isn't just religion, so to speak. In fact, I would argue that the Western world is more religious today than ever before, more superstitious. You talk to the guy on the street, and he might be offended if you say he's not interested in anything spiritual or anything religious. Everybody has their own convoluted concoction of religion today. In fact, religion today in the West is big business. When Paul arrived on the scene in Athens, he commented on how religious that city was. There were statues of gods and goddesses. In fact, historians tell us there were more statues of gods and goddesses than there were citizens in Athens. They were so afraid they'd missed a god, they built an altar to the god they didn't know about. And Paul comes on the scene, and in his very first sermon to them, he introduces them to the creator God of the ages, whose son came to redeem them, and they needed to repent and follow him because there would be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. So the solution for rioting and riotous living is not just another religion, It is a spiritual reformation that leads to a moral reformation. It's from the inside out. Now, when one of the young protégés of Paul was left to begin his ministry in leading the churches on the island of Crete, he was surrounded by religious syncretism, religious superstition. He was surrounded by mythologies that he'll challenge the church to to abandon. He would be submerged into a relativistic culture where lying and deceiving were part of the game. Just don't get caught. Don't be found out. You don't have to tell the truth. What's the truth? It was every man for himself. There were no virtues to win. There were no vices to shun. And so Paul knew fully well that the answer wouldn't be for Titus to just introduce, oh, here's another religion for you. You stuff this one in your backpack along with all the others. Now, the answer would be a spiritual change and reformation bound up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why when Paul introduces himself to the churches in Crete through his letter to Titus, and if you're not there yet, let me invite you to turn there once again. He informs Titus and the churches that he is very passionate about a number of things. In fact, Paul was a very passionate man. He's going to describe himself as his life relates to at least five different passions, commitments, incentives. And I thought we'd have room for all five. We're going to get through one and just a tad of the second one today. He's going to describe himself, and in doing so, every one of us who call ourselves Christians, the kind of passions that will change a person's life, his relationships, his work ethic, his perspective, in fact, his life in general. And if we ever hope to impact the world, these passions must become our passions. Uh, If you were, were with us in our last session Paul introduced himself as the slave of God in verse 1. The word doulos appears in that first self-disclosing title translated softly, bondservant. We spent a bit of time talking about that. 
And I hope you don't forget, if you were with us from that former study, that the English language throughout the centuries has attempted to soften the translation of doulos in using the term servant instead of slave. But the fact remains, there are a lot of Greek terms for servant, bond servant, but, but doulos isn't one of them. Doulos means rather crassly and woodenly, slave. And the difference we talked about between a slave and a servant is a servant is hired, a slave is what? Owned. You remember. Good. A slave has no rights of his own, no will of his own. His will is simply to do the will of his master. And you study the life of Paul and you find him living this way. He really did mean it when he said, Paul, I am a slave of God. That wasn't just for the apostle Paul, though. God hasn't hired us either. And so we don't negotiate with him on the terms. We're complaining we've been bought. We've been purchased. We're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. And then Paul went on to describe himself as an apostle, an apostolos, a messenger boy for Jesus Christ. He is passionate about both the message and his calling as a messenger Paul, frankly, was one of the most passionate men you'll probably meet. I think if we met with him, his leg would always be shaking because he's ready to go. He's ready to talk. He's ready to dig. He will teach into the early hours of the morning. He will be involved in all kinds of enterprises. He'll make tents on the side so that he can have money to do certain things. He's looking to go to Spain. He can't wait to get to Rome. Just passionate man. He lived in a hurry. I was behind a van the other day, as a matter of fact. In fact, after seeing these top ten things, I know that I belong in the Philippines where you drive with your foot on the pedal or on the brake. Well, I was behind one of these vans, white van. It was going 40 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour speed zone. That's an unpardonable sin in my book. At any rate, he wouldn't pull over. I couldn't get around him for several hours. I, well, it felt like it. For several miles. I traveled uh, behind him, paint splattered on the doors, on the bumper. I knew that this was a painting company van. Finally, when I was able to pass him, legally, I might add, I drove past him, and then I just had to chuckle. He had his window down, young guy, had his arm out, just having a good time, having a great day, going 40, 35, 40 miles an hour, and I couldn't help but laugh because I, I knew this guy was getting paid by the hour. His boss was probably wondering, where in the world is he? And he's thinking, life is really good. I don't have to get there any faster than I want to get there. I can live life in, the, in, in slow motion. He, why? He had a different perspective. If he could talk to his boss, his boss would be saying, as, as an owner, come on, we've got to do this. We've got to get this done. He's getting paid by the job. This guy is... What's the problem? You see, an employee thinks like, how many sick days are you going to give me? You know, I haven't used all of them. I think I'll feel ill today. What are you paying me? I'm actually worth more than that. He's negotiating. And owner's like, let's just get it done. This is the perspective of Paul, who was not only owned by God, but he owned, he was an owner of his calling passionate about it. I am all of the above, Paul says, a slave and a messenger. Why? He'll give us several passions and we'll cover one or two. 
The first one is this. He is passionate about God's elect. He says in the middle part of verse 1, I'm passionate, that is, I am all that I am for the faith of those chosen of God. The construction of that Greek phrase, kata, translated for, when attached to the accusative means, this is my goal. Uh, This is the end to which I'm headed. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm a slave of God and an apostle of Christ for this goal, for this passion. This is my incentive to establish, deepen the faith of those chosen of God. This theme, by the way, is picked up down in verse 13 where he tells Titus, you're going to need to correct those in the church because they need to become sound in the faith. He'll also, over in chapter 2, verse 2, tell older men to be dignified, sound in faith. He wants wants the body to be anchored to the the genuine articles of faith. So I have to ask the question, what, what is it? that we're passionate about? Are we passionate about relaying to the next generation of believers, to Christians at large, the soundness of their faith? The depth of their faith? Growth in faith? I shared with my greenhouse class the story of D.O. Moody. I apologize if I've shared it in here, but came back to my mind an evangelist in the mid-1800s as a young man. He wanted to join the church where he was attending. And back in that day, that required that he would be interviewed by the deacons. And by the way, this man would go on to preach crusades in England and America. He would establish a school we know now as Moody Bible Institute. Moody Press began with his efforts. The church he planted is now known as Moody Church, pastored by Erwin Lutzer. So he would be used significantly by the Lord. But part of the process for membership was you had to be interviewed by the deacon on the soundness of your faith, the doctrines of the church. So after that lengthy interview, uh, the record reveals to us that Moody was declined for membership based on the insufficient knowledge of the gospel. Now, they didn't just leave him there. They put him on a study. How long? One year. One year course of guided study in the Word. At the end of that year, they interviewed him again. And at the end of that interview, they received him into membership. The records showed, get this, they received him with reservation. We're a little concerned about whether or not he grasps the doctrines of our faith. Can you imagine trying to sell that today? You imagine that in the average church in America? We don't really care what you believe. We just want you to join us. We want to get bigger. We want to have more. Maybe a little more money. We, we need some volunteers. So come down and I'll raise your hand. We'll vote you in. You can do all that in one Sunday. We've never asked one question about doctrine, about what a person is believing, the soundness of their faith. Someone mentioned to me last week, I guess he kind of knew where I was headed. He said, Stephen, you got to see this book. So he told me about it, and I ordered it, got it, read it, and I've already tossed it. He did it tongue-in-cheek with me, but he knew I'd enjoy it. It, it certainly lived up to his title. Here's the title, written by a pastor of a liberal mainline denominational church today. Here's the title. 
What's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? Just let that sink in. What's the least I can believe and be a Christian? It's no surprise that he would go through his paperback book here denying biblical inerrancy. In fact, he made the statement, and I wrote it down. He said the biblical inerrancy was actually detrimental to authentic faith. I mean, believing this is the inerrant word of God is going to get in your way. He also went on to affirm homosexuality, argue for evolution, deny the literal eternal state of hell, suggest that unbelievers get into heaven as well. We don't know. We can't be certain. I found it ironic, by the way, that it was published by John Knox Press. <laughs> I can just imagine that reformer from Scotland rolling over in his grave with his name attached to such rubbish. The question is not, what's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? That'd be like a, a groom asking his bride there at the altar, what's the least number of vows I can give you and still be your wife? What's the least I can do as a father and be a good dad? What's the least amount I could do at my job and still keep it? What's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? I, frankly, that, that's exactly where the American church is today. The, the, the question ought to be, what's the most I can believe because I am a Christian? Would you teach? Could I learn? Can I get into the Word? We're going to go through the book of Titus, and we'll be finished in a few weeks. And, and we'll get to the end of it, and we will all say we could go back through it again because we really don't understand it. So deep, so rich, so wonderful. How much can I believe? Because I belong to Jesus Christ. Is there certainty in this book? Paul is passionate about the faith of those who belong to God. And he lived for the sake of the gospel. He lived for the body. Shipwrecked. Nearly stoned to death. Some believe he was stoned to death and resurrected. Beaten. Imprisoned. Executed as a martyr. His passion would be to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and it would not be the bare minimum for this great evangelist gave us the deepest of doctrines in his letters, didn't he? Passionate about the soundness of the faith. Notice, of those chosen by God. Now that phrase has caused a lot of heartburn, hasn't it? Chosen by God. From the word eklektos, which gives us our word elect. Mention that and people run for cover. Let me just spend a few moments. We've spent sermons on it in the past, so let me just spend a few moments here on this. And think of it as two sides of, of a coin. That coin being regeneration or, or salvation. One side of the coin is God's perspective. None of us can even come close to understanding what we read about God's perspective. The other side of the coin is our human responsibility. And we get that. We understand that because we're human beings. I'm an expert at understanding my own perspective in, in everything, right? We're good at that. So let me describe it in the terms that the New Testament uses for this gospel as he talks about it being a marriage I tried to think this week of perhaps a different kind of illustration to, to help. First, we have this divine, sovereign proposal 
from God. That's God's perspective. And he's chosen to deliver that proposal to his elect, and he chose before the foundation of the world. Secondly, on the other side of the coin, there is the willing acceptance of the unbeliever to that divine proposal. And it's going to take both in order to bring about salvation. Let me ask it this way. How many of you guys formally proposed marriage to your wife? This is not a trick question. If you're married, you can raise your hand. Okay. You formally proposed. How many of you guys said the words to your girlfriend that went kind of like this? I love you. Will you marry me? Will you be my wife even though I am forever unworthy of you? And all the ladies said, amen. Boy, is that ever true. Well, here's how it usually works. I mean, not always, but most of the time, eventually some guy comes to the realization that this woman, this this creature of enrapturing delight and infuriating complexity. I'm preaching the whole counsel of God here, okay, both sides. He says to himself, I I don't want to just live with her. I can't live without her. And all the men said, smart guy down to the front here. I'm not sure about the rest of you. You practice that. You really haven't fallen in love, although you have, certainly. But you are choosing to deliver to that woman your love, your fidelity, your vows of servanthood, your cherishing of her and loving her. And so you proposed to her because you'd chosen her. She also came to the same conclusion, perhaps not with the same enthusiasm, but she came to the same conclusion. Now listen, your choices did not make a marriage. Somebody had to propose. And guys finally got around to it. And somebody has to accept. Now on the wedding day, and I've done a number of weddings, if I were to ask the bride, did you choose him? She'd say, sure, I did. If I were to ask him, did you choose her? He would say, yes, I did. Of course I did. But in the order of events, he proposed, she accepted, which led to a marriage. Election is God's initiating proposal to the bride he's chosen for his son. In fact, the New Testament tells us the bride is his gift to the son. However, no one is going to go to heaven who hasn't accepted the proposal and said yes to Jesus. Nobody. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can stay up in the, in, in, through the middle of the night, and I certainly have, trying to figure out the mystery of God's proposal. But let's instead join Paul in, in being passionate about delivering the terms of the marriage contract to those who before time began God had chosen. And it's that message delivered to the world that brings to life by the Spirit of God those who will believe. And there has to be a messenger because Paul will tell the Romans they can't believe in someone they've never heard of. 
Somebody's got to go tell them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. By the way, how do you know if you're one of the elect? That's the easy part. Have you said yes to Jesus Christ? If you've said yes to Jesus Christ, then this doctrine is referring to you. And it's a positive doctrine, by the way. It's intended to do nothing more than dazzle the bride. In fact, the, the mystery of it dazzles us even further. And no woman that I know of, that I've ever been involved in a, in a wedding ceremony, gets down to the altar and then says to her future husband, I, I'm not enjoying any of this. Why not? Because I just can't get out of my mind all the girls you didn't choose. No, she's basking in the revelation of his love for her. See, this is designed for the amazement of the bride. This isn't something we go out there and ask everyone, are you elect, are you elect, are you elect? No, it's whosoever will may come, knowing that that part is God's. We deliver the message and the invitation. We don't understand God's part, but we're supposed to be left with this amazing thought that God's grace is indeed Amazing. He chose me. I don't understand that. I don't understand how Jesus Christ could pay 2,000 years ago for a sin I'll commit tomorrow. I don't understand that. But it's amazing. I don't understand how God's going to collect and reconstruct the dust in my casket and, and, and bring it to immortal life, to reunite it with my spirit, which has been with Christ already since the moment I died. I don't understand that, but I think it's amazing. Paul says effectively, I happen to be passionate about delivering the truth of the gospel, knowing that those whom God has chosen, when they hear the gospel, at some point in time in their lives, they will be brought to life. And believe. And frankly, let me tell you something. There's nothing more thrilling than being a part of that process. Paul, who teaches the doctrines of grace, is the most evangelistic man you'll ever read about. He would witness to a, a stump. I mean, this guy was committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more thrilling than delivering the gospel, the terms of the wedding contract to someone and watching as the Spirit of God opens their eyes in understanding. And they say, you know what, I want to say yes to Jesus Christ. You know what our challenge is as a church? That if I were to potentially ask for a show of hands of people in this assembly who have delivered the gospel to somebody, many hands would never go up. And if I wanted to even narrow it down further to say, everybody raise your hand if you have prayed with some unbeliever that God has allowed you to intersect and you've heard them receive Christ as Savior. See, I can stand up here and I can talk about the loss of virtues and the growth of vice and the digression of Western culture and, you know, the mainline denominational liberal church with all of its confusion. We can curse the darkness. But are we delivering the light? 
Titus needs to change the island of Crete. And it will not be by his efforts alone. It will be the magnificent mystery of the grace of God that will use his preaching and teaching. The light to bring people out of darkness into this marvelous light. I, I remember, in fact, I just reread again the story by Howard Hendricks, who retired from Dallas Seminary just recently. After teaching for 50 years, he remains, for most of his students, eternally grateful in our hearts for having had somebody teach us like him. He speaks biographically in his book, Teaching to Change Lives, which I now require for our seminary students here. And I want to read you a paragraph out of this. He writes, I'm sure I would have died and gone to hell and nobody would have particularly cared. That's how his book begins. I was born into a broken home, my parents having separated before I was born. The only time I ever saw them together was 18 years later when I was called to testify in a divorce court. As a boy, I lived in a neighborhood in North Philadelphia in which they said an evangelical church could never be planted. God has a sense of humor whenever anybody decides what can't be done. The Lord led a small group of Christians to band together, buy a little house, start a church. One man in the church as it developed, his name was Walt. He had only a sixth grade education. One day, Walt told the Sunday school superintendent he wanted a Sunday school class for boys for himself to teach. That's great, Walt. We don't have an opening. Our classes are filled with teaching staff. Walt insisted, however, so the superintendent told him, well, this is good. Why don't you go out and get a class? Anybody you find out there and bring them back is yours to teach. So he took him up on it. Hendricks wrote, Walt came into my neighborhood. The first time we met, I was in middle school playing marbles out on the concrete sidewalk. Son, he said to me, how would you like to go to Sunday school? I wasn't interested. Anything with the word school in it had to be bad news. So he said, well, how about I play you a game of marbles? Well, that was different. So he got down on his knees and we shot marbles that afternoon and had a great time, although he whipped me in every single game. After that, I would have followed him anywhere. Walt ended up picking up a total of 13 boys in that neighborhood to begin his Sunday school class, all but four of us from broken homes. And today, 11 of those 13 are serving Jesus Christ full-time. Hendricks concludes, so you see, my interest in teaching is much more than professional. It's intensely personal. It's a passion. Because the only reason I have a ministry today is that God brought along my path a committed, passionate Christian. See, Paul was that kind of passionate man. And he calls us to be the same. I'm going to deal lightly with just the next one. We may go back and rehearse it, but I want to give you one more passion. Paul was also passionate about God's truth. And uh, then we'll close here in just a moment or two. He goes on in verse 1. Notice this. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. And you really ought to circle that word truth because that's one of the most disgusting words to our generation. That is incredibly dogmatic to suggest that something is true truth, as Schaefer said. This sounds like you might be imposing a virtue on me. <laughs> it might be... That you, you dare to suggest a vice 
to me. That you might suggest there is right and wrong. The word truth suggests dogma, doesn't it? But, but we know today in our generation, of course, that it's really just your opinion. In fact, your truth is just for you. You can keep your truth to yourself, which basically relates everything to personal opinion. It's just your opinion. So, Paul, what do you mean that we can come to the knowledge of the truth? That sounds like certainty to me. Well, the word for knowledge Paul uses here is a compound Greek word that's a favorite. You'll find it over and over again in his letters. It refers to a precise understanding of something that is objectively true. Paul links it, the word knowledge, with truth often. You're coming to a precise understanding of something that's true. He's saying that truth can be knowable. It can be grasped, embraced. We can know things for certain. It isn't a matter of opinion that a spoonful of arsenic will kill you. That's the truth. Truth can have definitive content. The problem is we can buy that about arsenic, but bring it into the world of spiritual things, and all of a sudden everything is whatever you want to believe. Something true for me can be absolutely diametrically opposed to what you believe is true for you. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, we know the Bible is self-authenticating. Israel exists. The church exists. Prophecies have come true by the bucket load. Jesus Christ came. He was crucified, historically attested to that. His coming changed the way we view history. He rose from the dead. I witnessed by hundreds of people. The truth will not cease to be the truth if you don't buy it. The truth about this God, this Lord, that he lives. He lives whether or not we believe it. If you're traveling, think of it this way, down a mountain road, and there's a, you come across a sign, and it's got that curvy... Uh, serpentine figure and the and it says caution sharp curve ahead and the speed limit drops down to 25 you're going to drive 25 whether you're paid by the hour or not right you slow down actually you can do three things in relation to the truth of that message there's a sharp curve ahead you can obey it and slow down you can ignore it and maintain your speed Or you can defy it and speed up. No matter what anybody does in relation to the truth of that sign and the coming curve, that truth remains. In fact, we will suffer or be safe depending on how we respond to the truth. Paul says, I want the church on the island of Crete to get a grip on truth. And he's going to deliver a number of truths. We've got to get a hold of these. We have to understand these. These are laws, and we are either broken upon them or changed by them. You know, the problem with little children is they don't understand certain laws, like the law of gravity. They don't understand the law of gravity, so they get into trouble all the time because of that one law they don't quite understand. It is precise, isn't it? I mean, I understand that if I let go of this Bible, it's going to fall. Now, I don't need to raise it up again and wonder if I let go what's going to happen. It'll fall. 
Now, if, can you imagine the third time me saying, well, I'm not really certain it'll go anywhere. What if I let go and it just stayed here? It'd ruin my illustration. But I know when I let go, it's going to fall. It's the law of gravity. I remember years ago when I was supposed to be watching our youngest daughter, Charity. Keyword, supposed to be. Well, she was the only one in the house. She was in her diaper, kind of crawling around. I was reading a book in the chair in, in, in the living room, thinking, you know, what's the problem? No big deal. What can she do? She doesn't know how to light matches. You know, everything's probably going to be okay. Well, as I'm reading, all of a sudden I noticed she had crawled halfway up the stairs. And I did the wrong thing. I, I jumped out of my chair, went to her, and I said, Charity! Well, what do you think she did? Looked back at me and sat down on nothing. As I moved toward her, she bounced down toward me. I caught her on the third bounce. Turned and put up a three-pointer, and it was nothing but, no, I'm just teasing. Okay. I hugged her. Man, I don't want to do that again. She, she doesn't get this. It's going to be a precise law, and it's going to impact and affect her life. Titus, you're going to need to teach these churches that will teach then by demonstration their communities the precision regarding life, relationships, the truth about sin, the truth about moral purity, the truth about authority, the truth about heaven, the truth about the mercy of God. The truth about discipline, and on and on and on. The truth that life is not all about getting all the stuff you can get so you can finally arrive at retirement. Go back to the old version of the game. That's the gospel. Teach them that our lives on earth... They're a voyage. They, They begin at birth. They end at death. God is at the helm. And one day we will stand before him. And then our true reward will be given. Thank you for the opportunity of worshiping with you today. Our glorious Lord. Let's close as a benediction. Let's just sing amazing love. How can it be? Amazing love.